Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, please do open it to 2 Kings, chapter 5. And we're continuing the story of Naaman this morning. So I'm going to read the whole chapter to us, 2 Kings 5. And we're coming to the end of the story now. I think it's our third week in a row looking at this. So let me read from, from verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given him victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, Well, I thought he would surely come out to to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of his leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Well, how much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, He refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, 
My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, and not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Everything's all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come down to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves or in vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous and had become as white as snow. Thank you, Gary. Good morning, everybody. It's very good to be with you again this morning. I think I was last here when Phil started, so it's great to be back and to see this extraordinary, wonderful building in which you can now meet together. Thank you for having me here this morning. Would you keep that passage open in front of you, please, either on your phone or print Bible or whatever you've got? Uh, Josh has already prayed for us, so we'll turn straight to 2 Kings 5. I wonder if you're suspicious of special offers. Uh, yesterday, I went with one of our children to a car show where they had Bugattis and Koenigseggs and McLarens and Ferraris and all sorts of things. Uh, but when I went to buy the tickets for it, um, I went onto the normal website where you'd buy them, and then I thought, well, I'll just have a hunt around for, for some vouchers to see if I can get a discount anywhere. And there was another website you could go through, and instead of paying £67 for the tickets, they were just £40. So that was a, a 44% saving. I, I didn't just work that out myself. They, they, they told me it was 44%. But as I downloaded the vouchers and printed them out, I have to confess I was slightly concerned that we were going to turn up at the gates of this event at Nebworth House, enormously excited, only to find that the whole thing was a scam and that, in fact, you can't get tickets that cheaply for that event. Or I think of another occasion um, on holiday uh, with another one of our children and one of the, the, the street sellers comes up and tries to tie a bracelet on her wrist and says, it's absolutely free, it's completely free, there's no charge for it, I just want to give it to you as a gift. And he ties this thing on her wrist, and when it's tied on, he then begins to talk about how, how impoverished his family is um, and how he just needs some help. And it turned out, of course, it wasn't a free gift at all. Nothing in life, we sometimes think, is free. And sometimes we think that that's true of other people as well. It's not just that nothing's free for us, but nothing should be free for other people either. That everybody should earn what they get. There shouldn't just be handouts for people. People need to earn uh, what they need in life. 
There's such a thing as an honest wage in life, isn't there? And that's how the world works. You have to earn what you need. The whole of life is like that. Everything is about exchange. I give you this, you give me this. You give me this, I give you this. And so the circle runs of give and return. Life is about paying and earning our way. Well, what happens if you come with that pretty universal assumption about what life is like and how the world works to your relationship with God? You will quickly conclude that anything that you want from God, you're going to have to earn from God. And when you apply that to other people, well, if they want something from God, they should have to earn it too. And that, in essence, is Gehazi's catastrophic error in this passage. If you've not been here for the last few weeks, uh, the church has been looking at this passage for a few weeks now, and we're just going to be concentrating on the last section about Elisha's servant, Gehazi, and what he does after Naaman has been healed and departed, how he goes after him to try to get some money from him. Gehazi is thinking, everything in life has to be earned. If you want to receive something, you've got to give something. If you give something, you should get something back. That's his error. And the question this morning will be, is that our error too? So you've already met the servant girl right at the beginning of the passage, this extraordinary girl who's been abducted. I was thinking, what's this like? It's like northern Nigeria, isn't it? It's like a girl in a, in a school in northern Nigeria being abducted. How does she then feel about her abductors? Surely she hates them. But this Jewish servant girl points Naaman to where he can find healing. She points him to the one true God. Extraordinary thing for her to do. And then you've already met Naaman. Comes with his great entourage and all of this money. He disdains the River Jordan when he's told that he should bathe in the Jordan. But then somehow by the grace of God he's humbled and he submits to this and he's cleansed in this baptism-like event in the River Jordan. And actually deeper than that, as Phil said last week, it's not just about the cleansing of his body. He is, he is turned to the Lord. He's converted. He comes to know the living God. And now he leaves with a sensitive conscience concerned about uh, when he's in the temple supporting his master, having to bow down to the false god. He's got a newly awakened conscience. And you might think, well, that's a sensible place for the story to end. Verse 19, first half. Go in peace, Elisha said. That's Naaman's story done, isn't it? And you might think that what then happens with Gehazi is a rather strange appendix to this story about how the servant goes after him in this way. But actually, the fact that the chapter ends with this extra episode about Gehazi really changes the whole tone of it. If it did end with him being told, go in peace in verse 19, it would end in a way very comfortably, wouldn't it? It would be, it would be a lovely, happy ending. The story would be the story of Naaman, the pagan general who comes and is wonderfully healed and restored and departs to worship Yahweh in his homeland, to worship Jehovah God, the true God, back at home. But instead it all turns rather nasty and ends on a very, very different note. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever, verse 27. And he leaves with this 
horrible skin disease. Rather, it changes the, the, the last impression of the chapter upon us. And it leaves us with this simple challenge and warning, I think. It, it leaves us with a challenge which we've already had with Naaman. Will we receive the free grace of God for what it is? Free. But what the Gehazi episode adds is another challenge. Will we get in the way of others receiving it for free? And in doing that, reveal that actually we don't think it's free for us either. That's what we see with Gehazi. Now we can trace our way through this last section of the chapter by thinking about just one word. Uh, it's, it's one word, it's translated differently. Sometimes in the English it's take, sometimes it's receive, sometimes it's accept. But in the Hebrew, which is behind our translation, it's all the same word. And it's used ten times, nine of them in this last section. So this is clearly a big theme, the taking, accepting, receiving theme. So let me just walk you through that theme. It begins with its first use back in, in verse 5. Naaman took a huge amount of stuff with him. It really was a huge amount of stuff, 340 kilograms of silver, as you can see in the footnote there. So if you, if you ever buy dog food, we've just got a dog, so I'm, I'm now carrying sacks of dog food. We've had chickens for a while, so I've been carrying sacks of chicken food, or, you know, a typical sack of food, about this big a sack like that, yeah? Pretty heavy, if you're gonna carry it anyway, you need to really to heft it up onto your shoulder. So 340 kilograms, well, those sacks are 25 kilograms each. So that's what, 12, 13, nearly 14 sacks of silver, big, heavy sacks, each one of which is pretty tricky to lift. 90 kilograms of gold, that's nearly four sacks of gold, and then all these outfits. So he's clearly coming with this, I'm going to take this stuff in order to buy my healing mentality. That's what he's thinking. So in verse 15, he wants Elisha to take these things. So please accept a gift from your servant. There's our word translated as accept. Please take a gift. Please accept a gift from your servant. But verse 16, Elisha's having none of it. I will not accept a thing. There'll be no paying for this. So Elisha's very clear you can't purchase healing. You can't purchase the grace of God. There'll be no taking for it. You simply have to receive it freely, Naaman. Then we come to Gehazi. Verse 20. Something's going on in his heart. He's been watching, and he doesn't like what he's seen. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean. Spit. By not accepting, by not taking from him, there's our word, what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. He's going to take from Naaman because he's really not happy that Elisha didn't do any taking. So, he's just broken the 10th commandment, hasn't he? He's clearly coveting 
what Naaman has brought. He's had his eyes on the silver and the clothes, and he wants some of it. So he's broken the 10th commandment. And now he hatches a plot, which is going to involve breaking the 9th commandment. He's going to bear false witness. He's going to lie. He's going to do some taking. Verse 22. Everything's all right, he says to Naaman when he catches up with him. My master sent me to say, lie, he didn't. Two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Total fabrication. It's very clever though, isn't it? Because he's not saying I want it. He's asking for it for some prophets. Well, how does Naaman feel about prophets right now? He's super positive about prophets because the prophets just healed him. So absolutely happy to help with the sons of the prophets. And it's also very subtle because he doesn't ask for too much either. You know, that's, we've already seen 340 kilograms. That's 10 talents. He only asks for just, just one little talent, just one talent. And he doesn't ask for any gold either. He just aims a bit lower at the silver. And he could have 10 outfits, but he just asks for for two sets of clothing for them. It's a very cunning way of doing it, a very deceptive way of proceeding. A clever way of taking, we might think. And it works, verse 23. By all means, here's our word again, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept, to take them. And then he ties them up and hands them over. And then in verse 24, when Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. And so Gehazi finally does his taking and gets his hands on the stuff for himself. Now by this point, presumably Gehazi's thinking he's been really, really subtle and clever and he's going to get away with it because the whole thing's been done invisibly. Elisha's not got a clue. And so he gets back and sort of back into Elisha's presence. But somehow, miraculously it seems, supernaturally, Elisha has seen the whole thing that's happened. Verse 26, but Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept take clothes? or olive groves and vineyards, or flocks and herds, or male and female slaves. So Elisha is saying, Gehazi, you have completely misunderstood the grace of God. You have thought that this is a time for taking, but it is absolutely not a time to take anything from Naaman. You might think, well, is this sort of out of the blue thing for Gehazi suddenly to be bad like this? It doesn't seem so. He was bad back in chapter 4 as well. He's got form so far. When the grieving mother came to Elisha in chapter 4, Gehazi's lovely reaction was try to shove her away and stop her coming to the prophet. That's chapter 4, verse 27. But just step back for a moment with me and think about the way Gehazi is behaving here. Let me ask you a question. In this story in chapter 5, so within, of figures within the story, whose mentality does Gehazi share? Who's he like? Who does he behave like in this story? And if you ponder that for a moment, you can see that he's actually behaving 
in the way that the old Naaman behaved. He's like Naaman when Naaman first came to Israel. Naaman came thinking, what you do when you need help, when you need God to help you, when you want the prophet to do something for you, what you do is you bring an enormous amount of money to buy it. So you see the way that Gehazi's behavior is being depicted in this story makes him just like the old Naaman. He's coming to God in the way that Naaman came to God at the beginning of the story. He's like the pre-conversion Naaman who thinks this is how the world works. When you want something, you have to buy it. If you're going to receive something, you have to give something to get it. If you receive something, etc., etc., etc. He's thinking it's like a circle. So he's like the old Naaman. And the tragedy of the story is that Naaman by now has learned his lesson. Naaman's learned that that's not how God works that you receive freely from God. You don't have to purchase things from God. You don't have to pay to get the grace of God. But Gehazi is just getting worse and worse as the story goes on, whereas Naaman has been converted. So Gehazi is thinking in a totally pagan way, because this is, of course, how the pagans treated their gods in the ancient world. It was all about giving God a gift in order to get something back. That was how pagan sacrifice worked in the ancient world. So Gehazi has a totally pagan, godless mentality, just like Naaman did at the beginning of the story. But he's got worse and worse in it, whereas Naaman has been wonderfully delivered from it. It's no surprise then, is it, what happens to Gehazi at the end of the story? Because who does Gehazi become at the very end of the story? In the last verse. Do you see? He becomes Naaman. Naaman has this terrible skin disease. Naaman turns to the Lord, learns that you don't buy stuff from God, learns that you receive God's grace freely, and is set free from the disease. Gehazi, locked firmly into the old pre-conversion Naaman mentality, of course, ends up becoming Naaman at the end of the story. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous, it had become as white as snow. He has become the old Naaman. He's become the pagan that he truly is. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to learn what Naaman learned and break out of the Gehazi-like pattern of thinking about your relationship to God. Gehazi is catastrophically wrong and ends up bringing disaster not only on himself but even horrifically on his descendants as well because he's locked into this wrong way of thinking about how a creature relates to God. You cannot buy the grace of God. You can't pay for it. There is absolutely nothing you can do to earn favor with God. You could devote the rest of your life to attempting to serve God sinlessly from this moment on, and you're already ruined before you start because of the sins you've already committed. That is not how sinful people relate to God. We must, like Naaman, become children before God. Did you notice that when it was healed, it said his skin was like the skin of a young boy? 
when he was healed. Naaman has been humbled. Rather than being the great general coming with all his riches, he's ended up like a little boy with clean skin like a child's. And we must all be like little children who simply receive and receive and receive before God. Life is not, in terms of our relationship to God, a circle in which we receive and give back to him. It is a one-way line of his grace giving to us and us receiving freely and giving nothing back. Your service to God, yes, are you here early in the morning doing something, setting up? Are you feeling pretty worn down in serving God in the life of Oakville Church? You are not giving anything back to him. He doesn't need any of it. Everything is already his. You receive freely. That's the message if you're not a Christian. You need to understand that the only way to be reconciled to God is to come and receive the free gift of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. But actually, I think, in case you Christians here are thinking you're off the hook, here's one for the non-Christians. Actually, the thrust of this passage is much more addressed to believers and is rather uncomfortable for us. The main thrust here is for the professing Christian, for the insider, because that's who Gehazi was, isn't it? Think about Gehazi. He's lived with Elisha. He's witnessed with his own eyes the extraordinary miracles that Elisha has done. He's seen the dead raised. He's seen the River Jordan parted. He's been there in the thick of it. He's an insider. What incredible privileges he has enjoyed to live with the prophet like that. He's not like the outsider. He's like Judas, who lived with Jesus for all of that time. So he's a believer in that sense, at least a professing believer. He's an insider. But he's an insider who by the end of the story horrifically has become an outsider, like the leprous Naaman was. He's gone away from God. If you think about the Old Testament temple system and the tabernacle system, if you were a leper, you couldn't enter the presence of God. So to have leprosy is to be totally on the outside in the Old Testament. So that Gehazi is, is somebody who's embedded on the inside, who ends up being cast out on the outside. What is it that exposed Gehazi for what he truly was and put him where he truly belonged on the outside? The striking thing is this. It's not how he responds to God's grace to him that exposes him. It's his attitude to other people being saved that exposes him. It's that thing in verse 20, isn't it? This Aramean, he spat. Gehazi hates the grace of God coming freely to Naaman. Gehazi thinks Naaman is the enemy. Of course he was, wasn't he? In fact, if you read on into the next two chapters of two kings, the Arameans are attacking Israel again. So they're absolutely the enemy. He's the abductor who's got this slave girl in his house. 
he's an enemy. And Gehazi thinks, Naaman's an enemy. If an enemy's going to get anything out of God, surely he's got to pay for it. And it's absolutely right that I, an insider, should be paid and should benefit from that awful Aramean getting something from God. You see, Naaman's very relaxed about, sorry, Gehazi's very relaxed about God being kind to him, to Gehazi. He's happy to benefit from God's grace. No trouble accepting a message of God's free grace to him. But when he sees God's free grace towards an enemy, we discover actually he doesn't believe in God's free grace at all. Naaman, he believes, must pay. Naaman must operate in the circle where to receive, you must give. Now, as you've heard over the last few weeks, this book is written uh, to those in exile, so it's written to people who are living utterly embedded among pagans, among Gentiles. So this is a huge question for them. What do we think about Gentiles being saved, they're to ask? How are we to relate to these Gentiles all around us in whose land we're living? Are they irredeemable enemies who, if they are going to be redeemed, are going to be redeemed by paying their own price and us benefiting from it? Or are we Israelites prepared to see them receive the free grace of God for nothing? And that, of course, is a question very easily applicable to us today. It was applicable in Jesus' time as well. He mentions this passage in Matthew 4. He's at the synagogue in Nazareth, and he points out to them how in the days of Elisha, there were many, many lepers among the Israelites, but Elisha healed a pagan. And what's their reaction in Matthew 4? They are enraged when Jesus says this. They hate it. They hate the idea that God might be gracious to a pagan. So let me ask you, are you prepared to receive the free grace of God in your own life, if you're not a Christian here this morning, to give up trying to earn favor with God? If you are a Christian, I take it you believe already that you've received the free grace of God. But let me tell you from this passage how you know whether you really have understood that it's free. It is when you see other people receiving it freely and you look into your own heart to see well what is my reaction to that maybe you have been laboring serving the Lord Jesus Christ for many many years and you are in your 60s let's say and somebody who has lived the most godless life is converted at your age. Does a little bit of you think they really need to do something to earn their place now in the church because you've been here serving for years and years and years, working really hard? Are they really to walk into the same privileged children as a position as children of God as you after all of your labors? Could that really be right that they should do that? seems to me that this theme, this question that our passage leaves us with is picked up a number of times by the Lord Jesus himself. Remember the parable in Matthew 20 of, of the, the, the vineyard owner hiring people to work for him 
at different points throughout the day, so that at the end of the day, when he comes to pay them all, there are some who have only done a little bit of work, and he pays them the same. Really? Is that right? Should they be paid the same? Or the older brother and the parable of the prodigal son. Yes, the prodigal goes away and squanders all of his inheritance. He's treated his father so horrifically, he comes back. The father rejoices. The father understands the free grace of God. But the brother's furious. I've been here working away. And I think it comes out most clearly, perhaps, in the parable of the unforgiving servant forgiven so much by his master and he walks out and meets someone who owes him money and he's furious and he wants to have him imprisoned until he pays because he's very happy for the grace of God to be free for him but not for an enemy not for somebody indebted to him I wonder if you have an enemy has anyone sinned grievously against you well ask yourself what would you think if they were converted and God freely forgave them? Does a bit of you harbor a desire for revenge against them, that they should pay the price for those horrible things that they did to you? Well, that's very understandable. But it's an utterly human way of thinking that is totally contradicted by the grace of God and the free grace of God in the gospel. You will know whether you have understood that the grace of God is free to you and that you can do nothing to earn or purchase it when you see yourself reacting to other people receiving the grace of God freely. Will you rejoice to see them do that and in that moment prove yourself to be a Naaman and not a Gehazi? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that your grace is indeed utterly free and unpurchasable. We acknowledge that we stand before you as sinners who deserve only your wrath and yet have been pardoned freely. We acknowledge that there is nothing that we have that we have not received from you freely. We pray, Heavenly Father, for any here this morning who still believe that they must earn favor with you. And we pray that you would open your eyes by the Spirit to see that your grace is freely given in the Lord Jesus. But we pray too for ourselves as those who profess already to know this. And we pray that we might prove that to be true by rejoicing when others freely receive your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.